Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, the book of Acts, chapter 10, the conclusion. We are still in Acts chapter 10. And while we're going to finish it today, um, the issues that surface from its God-inspired words are most challenging. You ready for it? And it's profoundly important to our faith. I promise you. So we're going to keep hacking away at it to try to extract from these passages both the spiritual truth and the practical applications. Now Jews well understand the primary issue underlying this chapter. It's the resolution of it that befuddled them. But Gentile Christians have a hard time even discerning the nature of the actual issue. And if we don't understand the issue, we're certainly going to misunderstand the outcome. We finished up at chapter 10, verse 28 last time. And just to refresh our memories, it says this. He, meaning Peter, said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have a close association with someone who belongs to another people or, or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. Now the underlying issue that is being dealt with in Acts chapter 10 <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in Acts chapter 10 <coughs> is about Peter um, and other Jews and their relationship with Gentiles. At this point in history, traditions, oral Torah, had by now substantially distorted what the Lord had ordained in the Torah about the ritual purity status of Gentiles. Thus, Acts chapter 10 is God in the process of straightening that out. Much as Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew was also God straightening out wrong-minded traditions on a wide array of subjects. Now commentators like to say that the main issue in Acts chapter 10 was about Peter and other Jews eating with Gentiles. That's only true to a point. Food was indeed seen as perhaps the most serious, the most preventable opportunity for a Jew to become ritually defiled. Knowing which animals could and could not be eaten for food was easy. Every Jewish child knew it by heart. It was the intricate rules about handling the food that was problematic. And tradition complicated the matter. There was any number of ways that perfectly kosher food could become unclean and therefore inedible through improper handling. It could happen from, from the animal being raised incorrectly or by it being slaughtered incorrectly or by not properly draining and disposing of the blood or allowing it to come into contact with something else 
that was ritually unclean, including especially a ritually unclean person. Because ritual impurity can be transmitted from object to object. Now, Middle Eastern hospitality always demanded that a guest was presented with food. Always. So should a Jew venture into the home of a Gentile, for them it was like going into the contagious disease ward at a hospital. It was a big risk because even if the food they were offered was of a kind that a Jew could normally eat, there was no assurance about how it had been handled. Even more, Jews considered Gentiles as naturally unclean. So whatever a Gentile touched, be it food, furniture, clothing, bedding, the floors and walls of their homes, anything, the Jews believed those Gentiles transmitted their uncleanness to it. So it was nearly impossible that a Jew wouldn't be infected with ritual impurity. Not only was the mere thought of it disgusting, there would then be a cumbersome and at times expensive process to return to a state of ritual purity using the remedies set down by the law of Moses. Why were Gentiles considered by Jews as automatically unclean? Well, academic Jews would say it was primarily because Gentiles were idolaters. They worshipped some other god than the God of Israel. It was also because Gentile females didn't follow the proper procedures at the end of their periods. Males didn't follow the proper procedures after intimacy with their wives, which could have cured the, the, the ritually impure conditions that resulted from it. But to the average everyday Jew, Gentiles are unclean because tradition says they are. That's just how Gentiles were created. Yet, what about the God-fearer Gentiles who weren't idolaters and instead worshipped only the God of Israel? That presented a particularly difficult conundrum about which there wasn't universal agreement within Judaism. Could they attend synagogues? Could they dine with Jews? Could they go to the temple? In the end, it turns out that for Jews of this era, the conundrum was mostly about the perceived need for circumcision of God-feared Gentiles. And we're going to get into that shortly after we reread the final verses of Acts chapter 10. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start reading at verse 28 and go to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, this begins on page 1374. Beginning with verse 28. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. So when I was summoned, I came without raising any questions. Now tell me, why did you send for me? Now 
Cornelius answered, Well, three days ago around this time, I was at Micha prayers, afternoon prayers, in my house when suddenly a man in shining clothes stood in front of me and he said, God has heard your prayer and remembered your acts of charity. Now, send to Yafo and ask for Shimon, known as Kepha, Simon Peter. He's staying in the house of Shimon, a leather tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now all of us are here in the presence of God to hear everything the Lord has ordered you to say. And then Kepha addressed them. I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him, no matter what people He belongs to. Here is the message that he sent to the sons of Israel announcing Shalom through Yeshua the Messiah who is Lord of everything. You know what has been going on throughout Judah starting from the Galilee after the immersion that Yochanan, John, proclaimed. How God anointed Yeshua from Nazareth with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and with power, how Yeshua went about doing good and healing all the people oppressed by the adversary because God was with him. And now as for us, we are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean countryside and in Jerusalem. They did away with him by hanging him on a stake, but God raised him up on the third day and let him be seen, not by all people, but by witnesses God had previously chosen, that is, by us, who ate and drank with him after he had risen from the dead. Then he commanded us to proclaim and attest to the Jewish people that this man had been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets bear witness to him that everyone who puts his trust in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Kepha was still saying these things when the Ruach HaKodesh fell on all who were hearing the message, all the believers from the circumcision faction who had accompanied Kepha were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit was also being poured out on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues, praising God. Peter's response was, is anyone prepared to prohibit these people from being immersed in water? After all, they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And he ordered that they be immersed in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Then they asked Kepha to stay on with them for a few days. The final few words of verse 28 have Peter saying that God showed him not to call any man common or unclean. How did God show him this? by means of that vision of the creatures inside a sheet that was being lowered down from heaven. Now I'd like to put the final nail into the coffin of the uh, incorrect doctrinal teaching that this vision had to do with food. That is, I'm saying that this vision was not at all about God abrogating Levitical food laws as is a kind of a standard Christian doctrine. Rather, the vision of the unclean animals was merely symbolic of something else since the vision was essentially a parable. Now, I've made my case on this sufficiently that all I could do at this point is repeat myself. So, I'd like instead to quote to you from a revered early church father, the Venerable Beatty an English monk who lived and wrote about 700 AD. Now this excerpt I'm going to quote to you from is taken from his commentary on the book of Acts. He says this, 
I am amazed at how some people interpret this as having to do with certain foods that were prohibited by the old law, but that are now to be consumed since neither serpents nor reptiles can be eaten. Nor did Peter himself understand it in this way. Rather, he understood it as meaning that all people are equally called to the gospel of Christ and that nothing is naturally defiled. For when he was reproached, he explained the symbolism of this vision, not as giving the reason why he ate beasts, but why he associated with Gentiles. Quite correct. While food was used for symbolism, the vision wasn't about food. So while some might say that when I teach you that the Levitical food laws were not abolished and that this vision parable given to Peter certainly didn't do so because this had nothing to do with food in the first place, it's because I have a Hebrew roots or Messianic theology. But here we have a Gentile English Christian monk, an early church father, of great repute, saying exactly the same thing 1,300 years ago, and he was flabbergasted that some of his fellow Christians just couldn't see it. So the bottom line is that Peter is being taught that God does not create anything that is naturally unclean. That is, nothing is unclean in its naturally created state. Rather, all things begin as ritually clean. So for something to become unclean, something has to happen to it. Now before somebody says, now wait a minute, I thought a vulture, for instance, was a naturally unclean bird. Not so. It is merely a bird that the Lord says is not permitted for food and thus also for religious purposes, such as sacrificing. A vulture is not of itself unclean. Because clean and unclean versus permitted and prohibited are two entirely different matters that the Torah deals with separately. A vulture is not permitted for food, but it's not inherently unclean. Now further, the God principle is, take a good look at this chart that's up here. The God principle is that every created thing is created what is called spiritually common. Common objects and people can remain in that spiritual state of common and clean, or they can be elevated to holy at God's decision. Conversely, objects and people that are common and clean can be degraded to unclean, usually by an act of man. But never can a man elevate the common to the holy. That lies purely within the authority of God. What I just told you is perhaps one of the most important God principles there is. And it is clearly stated in the biblical Torah. That is, this is not a tradition, it's not a custom, it's not speculation, and it's not allegory. 
See, Paul said essentially the same thing in his own way and in a slightly different context in the book of Romans. In Romans 14.14, we hear Paul say this, I know, that is, I've been persuaded by the Lord Yeshua the Messiah that nothing is unclean in itself. But if a person considers something unclean, then for him it's unclean. Now here Paul admits that like Peter, he had to be persuaded that the, by the Lord that nothing's unclean of itself. That is, whether it's a person or an object, God does not create anything unclean. See, he had to be convinced, he had to have his mind changed. Because as a highly trained Pharisee, Paul had been taught otherwise. Pharisees, all of Judaism really, believed that Gentiles were essentially born as naturally unclean people. Thus, another important God principle is at play in our story. Now, it's not just important for Jews. It's also important for believing Gentiles. When something is unclean, it cannot be made holy. First, the unclean has to be restored to a spiritual status of common and clean. Then, from common and clean, God can elevate it to holy. So notice in this passage of Romans that Paul is talking about a person believing that something is unclean. Now, give me your focus, please. If that person believes something is unclean, then to him or her, it's unclean. But here's the kicker. This principle doesn't work the other way around. Paul never says, oh yeah, and vice versa. Whichever way we go, folks, doesn't matter. He never says if you believe that something is ritually clean, but it's unclean, then for you, it's clean. He doesn't say that. Look at the words. Yet that's actually, usually, read into this passage. And it's taught as though that's what he said. I hope you see that. See, this passage only deals with unclean things. It does not deal with clean things. You see, while there's no danger to us in, avoid, in, in, in considering something unclean, and then we avoid it, even if that object in reality is ritually clean, there is danger in considering something clean, especially when God says the object is unclean, and we partake of it anyway. That's where the problem is. That is precisely what worried the Jews about coming into contact with Gentiles. That was the issue. So the attitude was developed, better safe than sorry. Better to err on the side of considering Gentiles and everything they contact unclean, thus avoiding them, than to consider them clean and be wrong, thus becoming personally, ritually defiled. Now I know this is so hard for us to wrap our minds around because that is because this thought process has never held a place in Gentile Christian life or discussion. For some reason, centuries ago, the spiritual states of clean and unclean have been removed 
from Christian thought and ideology. But it's biblical. It is historical. It remains in effect. Gentiles have simply been ignorant of it, usually because it's explained only in the Old Testament. And this ignorance has at times led to a gross misunderstanding of some New Testament scripture passages. And by the way, Paul is not talking, Paul is not talking about people here in Romans 14 as he speaks about considering something as unclean. He is talking about objects, mainly food. How do I know this? Because in the next verse of Romans, Romans 14, 15, we just read 14, 14, now we're moving on to 15. And if your brother is being upset by the food you eat, your life is no longer one of love. Don't, by your eating habits, destroy someone for whom the Messiah died. Uh, Follow, please, what I'm about to tell you. If you do not think that the biblical food laws matter, then you probably aren't going to be thrilled by what I have to show you. Sometimes the truth is hard to swallow. Pardon the pun. (laughs) Now notice, because this is usually taught backwards, Paul does not say, if your brother is upset at the food, you avoid That is, this is not about if your fellow believer is upset because he sees you avoiding foods you think to be unclean. Paul says, if your brother is upset by the food you eat. And remember, in the previous verse, the context is all about considering something unclean. Think about it. Think about this verse for a minute. Would a brother ever become upset by the food you eat if he thinks it's clean? Why would that bother him? Of course not. So clean food is not the context of this verse. Rather, if a fellow believer sees you eating food that is unclean to him or her, even though you don't care about following the biblically kosher food laws, then it's selfish for you to eat food in front of him that to him is unclean. Paul says it's not loving of you because it's upsetting to him. And yet this verse is typically taught exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Instead, it's usually taught, as Paul is saying, that if a person considers the food to be clean, then it's the one who considers the food to be unclean that's doing wrong and upsetting his brother. I want to put a finer point on it. As you look at these words, see the truth of what I'm telling you. I want to give you an example of how this verse applies. You come to my house at my invitation for dinner. I know you observe the biblical food laws. But still, I serve things that I know are unclean to you. I eat them anyway. I don't insist that you do the same. Paul says that's not a loving thing for me to do. It's not loving for me to do that to you. 
it's not you doing wrong. Because you will not eat the things that I serve you that you consider are unclean. It's me that is wrong for putting things before you, serving you, that I know you consider unclean. I'm wrong to do that to you. Romans 14.15 is not about what is avoided. It's about what is eaten. Can you see that? This passage is not about clean food. It's about unclean food. This principle is a one-way street. It's always presented in the Bible. I don't care where you look. As a one-way street. In our day and age, what we choose to eat has taken on a greater significance, not because of scarcity, at least not in the Western world, but because of the issue of maintaining good health and so achieving longer lifespans. People, including believers, care about their diet being organic and healthy. But they don't care about whether God says any particular edible item should be eaten at all. I can understand this for the secular world. But for believers... I mean, my brethren, God has listed what is edible food for us and what's not. The prohibited list is so small. (laughs) It's nothing. It's not hard to avoid. Your bodily health is, of course, very important. But your spiritual health is a lot more important. No matter. Acts chapter 10 isn't directly about food anyway. It's about ritual purity as regards Gentiles. So in verse 29, after Peter now understands that salvation in Christ is for Gentiles too, and that God does not view Gentiles as inherently ritually unclean, Peter asks Cornelius, why has he bid him to come? And Cornelius begins to answer in verse 30. And Cornelius recounts about how he too had a vision. And it occurred at the hour of the traditional afternoon prayers. Traditional for Judaism. And the man in his vision, earlier this man was referred to as an angel by the way, told him to send for Peter. And also told him where Peter was located. So Cornelius was obedient. He sent for him. He's now gathered friends and family for surely God has something important to say through Peter. Peter now speaks. And in verse 34, he begins with a humble and a game-changing admission by saying that he now fully understands that God is not partial only to Jews, but rather any man from any nation or people who bows down to him does what is right, meaning what's right in God's eyes, that person's welcome to him. Peter didn't understand this except within the last 72 hours of his life that Gentiles could be saved in Yeshua's name. Just to be clear, God had not changed anything. It is only that Peter had had it wrong all of his life. Gentiles had always had a way to become welcome to God. 
Christ's atoning death wasn't aimed only at getting Jews into the kingdom. It was aimed at all the people on earth, without exception. Christ's death and resurrection explains how the promise of the Abrahamic covenant that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his Hebrew descendants, how it would finally come about. At verse 36, Peter makes the assumption that Cornelius is well aware of the ritual purity issues between Jews and Gentiles and is also somewhat familiar with the story of Yeshua's life, death, and resurrection. And then Peter goes on to summarize just the important events of Messiah's life and mission. But let's not miss the underlying tone here. Peter is making it clear that salvation first came to who? The Jews. Now... Gentiles would hear of this salvation the Jews have as a result of their Jewish Messiah from Jewish witnesses to Christ's life and teachings. Peter emphasizes this point in verse 41 when he says, Not by all the people, but by witnesses God had previously chosen, that is, by us, who ate and drank with Him after He had risen again from the dead. It was Jews who were the chosen witnesses. In fact, it was a select group of Jews among which Peter was one. Thus, while Cornelius and other Gentile God-fearers are acceptable to God, Gentiles should keep in mind that God's word was given to the Jews 1,400 years earlier. The Savior, our Savior, is a Jew. Those who know God's word and protect it and tell others about it are Jews. And salvation was first given to the Jews. Thus the Jews hold a place of preeminence and leadership in the faith. It is the Jews who are essentially tasked with preaching and testifying about Yeshua. Not Gentiles. At least not in the beginning. Paul would essentially say the same thing to begin Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, 1 through 4, we read this. Then what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their faithfulness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true even if everyone were a liar, as the Tanakh says, so that you, God, may be proved right in your words and win the verdict when you're put on trial. But perhaps the most important statement in Peter's talk now to Cornelius and to his household that shows that Peter really gets what God showed him in his vision is a statement in Acts 10.43 that forms the foundation for the congregational body of Christ. He says, All the prophets bear witness to Him that everyone who puts his trust in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. There is the Gospel of Messiah Yeshua in a nutshell. There it is. You've got to underline that. It's inclusive. It requires trust in Yeshua. And through this will one's sins be forgiven. 
I want to say it one more time. While this was a revolutionary concept to Peter, he readily admits that he had had it all wrong up to now. And in fact, all the Old Testament prophets bore witness to Christ and what His coming would mean for everyone, not just for the Jewish people. Now while Peter was still speaking these words, says verse 44, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, interrupted him and it fell on everyone who was listening. What this means is simple. Cornelius's Gentile household believed Peter's message. They believed that Yeshua was Messiah and they accepted that the Messiah of the Jews was also the Messiah for the Gentiles. But now in verse 45 comes the issue that would prove to be one of the most contentious and most misunderstood as regards salvation. The issue of circumcision for Gentile males who turned to Messiah Yeshua. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But first, notice that the circumcised who were present were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit fell upon this group of Gentiles. That one of these Gentiles was a Roman army officer? Well, that was even more astounding since this man was the visible symbol of Rome's oppression upon God's people. Further, these Gentiles began speaking in tongues, praising God in ways that no one who didn't know Him intimately could possibly do. The complete Jewish Bible and others will add the word faction or believers to the word circumcision. Those words aren't there in the original Greek. But in order for this phrase to make any sense to us, something does need to be added. So who is the circumcision faction? Referring to, in our case here anyway. Since this is referring to Jews, naturally they're all circumcised. Believer or not believer. However, we are told in Acts chapter 11, which will start next week, it was exactly six Jews who met with Peter from Yafo, who went, rather, who went with Peter from Yafo to meet Cornelius. And that these six Jews were brethren, meaning they were believers. So among these six believers who accompanied Peter, some of them belonged to a subgroup of Jewish believers who thought that God-fears needed to be circumcised if they wanted to worship the God of Israel. And at the bottom of this requirement for circumcision, we're right back to ritual purity. That's what it was about. However, we also have to understand what circumcision meant in that era. It meant that one became an official Jew. A person literally converted from being a Gentile to being a Jew. That said, it would be a mischaracterization to say that those who insisted on the circumcision of Gentile God-fearers were a separate group in the same way that Pharisees are a separate group from the Sadducees. Rather, they were members of the way, but they held to a personal conviction that Gentile God-fearers should be converted to Jews. Further, this had little to do 
with the Gentile becoming a believer and follower of Yeshua. That is, the circumcision faction did not come into existence as a result of Christ's advent and then demand that Gentiles convert to Jews in order to worship Christ. This demand was scattered throughout various segments of Judaism and the way was, rightfully so, considered as part of Judaism. This circumcision faction had existed long before the time of Christ. See, because historically Judaism had become rather popular in the Roman Empire. Many Gentiles wanted to worship Israel's God. Thus, to these believers in Yeshua who followed Peter, to go to Cornelius' house and meet him, the advent of Christ didn't change anything as far as their perceived need for a Gentile to convert to Judaism by means of being circumcised. For them, belief in Christ was merely the natural path for Judaism. Not something different or separate. That is because the same attitude still prevailed. Why would a non-Jew worship a Jewish God and adopt, adopt a Jewish Savior? For Jews of that day and up to now, for Peter, that logic was impeccable. Thus, by a male Gentile God-fearer being circumcised, thus becoming a Jew, that generally solves the concern about ritual purity issues. It was going to be a very hard sell, especially for Paul, to get Jewish believers of the circumcision faction to relent on the matter of circumcision for Gentile believers and there's never been much success in that regard to this day. What we have here with the Holy Spirit falling on Cornelius and his household is no less than a second Pentecost event. The first Pentecost event was of course obedient to what Christ said. First to the Jew then to the Greek. Thus it was only upon Jews that the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem on that very special biblical feast day of Shavuot. And what did they do? They spoke in tongues. Here we have the same thing happen to a group of Greeks, Gentiles. And to all those present, including those Jews of the circumcision faction, there was simply no denying it because they saw it with their own eyes. They were there. Whether they liked it or not, these uncircumcised Gentiles had been received by God. And the spectacular descending of the Holy Spirit upon them presented undeniable proof. Peter's response was to ask now, is there anything to prohibit these from being immersed? It reminds one of the Ethiopian eunuch who asked Philip if there was anything that should prevent him from being baptized. So it is not, you see, that Cornelius was the first Gentile to be baptized or even to receive the Holy Spirit. It is that Peter, who is the head of the body, the head of the body of believers now at this time, 
he now realizes that this handful of cases of Gentiles coming to belief and being baptized would no longer be unique. Rather, it would become the norm. Interestingly, we hear of no protest from the circumcision faction. We hear of no demand or expectation that Cornelius and his household would be circumcised. But, as with so many long-held traditions and beliefs, no matter how misguided, they don't easily change or die. Thus, circumcision of Gentile believers is going to become and remain a troubling issue within the way for the remainder of the New Testament. It seems to have been left to Paul to do more than merely declare that circumcision of Gentiles was not needed to be accepted Christ worshippers. He would have to explain the theology behind it. And once again, let me point out that for Jews of this era, circumcision was not merely an issue of following a traditional ritual. Rather, circumcision meant one thing and one thing only. One was one was or one was becoming a Jew. That's what it meant. And with circumcision, one did not become a Jew symbolically. It wasn't a means to show sympathy or solidarity with the Jewish people. One literally became a national Jewish citizen and would no longer identify as a Gentile. Now Paul dealt with this matter of circumcision of Gentiles from the most important aspect, the spiritual aspect. And he did that in Romans chapter 2. So I want to close today with what he said about it. In Romans 2, 13-29, Paul says this, For it is not merely the hearers of Torah whom God considers righteous, rather it's the doers of what Torah says who will be made righteous in God's sight. For whenever Gentiles who have no Torah do naturally what the Torah requires, then these, even though they don't have the Torah, are for themselves Torah. For their lives show that the conduct the Torah dictates is written in their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness to this, for their conflicting thoughts sometimes accuse them, sometimes defend them. Defends them on a day when God passes judgment on people's inmost secrets. According to the good news, as I proclaim it, he does this through Messiah Yeshua. But, if you call yourself a Jew, and you rest on the Torah, and you boast about God, and you know His will, and you give your approval to what is right, because you've been instructed from the Torah, and if you've been persuaded yourself that you are a guide to the blind, you are a light in the darkness, an instructor for the spiritually unaware, a teacher of children, since in the Torah you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, don't you teach yourself? Preaching thou shalt not steal. Do you steal? Saying thou shalt not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Detesting idols. 
Do you commit idolatrous acts? You who take such pride in Torah, do you you, by disobeying the Torah dishonor God? As it says in the Tanakh, it's because of you that God's name is blasphemed by the Gentiles. Because circumcision is indeed of value if you do what the Torah says. But if you're a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, a Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised, but he obeys the Torah, he will stand as a judgment on you who have had a brit milah, that's a circumcision ceremony, and you have Torah written out, but you violate it. Because the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart. Spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. That's a mouthful, isn't it? What did we just hear Paul say? He says that the man who obeys the Torah but is physically not circumcised, he's a Gentile, not a Jew, is going to stand in judgment against a Jew, a circumcised person, who disobeys God's Torah. Circumcision was a physical symbol that anyone could wear whether they trusted and obeyed the God of Israel or not. But a man who didn't wear that physical symbol of circumcision, a Gentile, but did trust God and did obey God's Torah, that man God would declare as righteous and acceptable. We'll begin Acts chapter 11 next week.